0: All right. Well, good morning, Gospel Hope, and um, those of you that are guests um, with us. Uh, It is uh, fun to see your faces. It's good to be back. I have been away for quite a bit um, from uh, serving in the gospel um, next door with our with our other family uh, over at First Baptist Avondale to being on vacation with my uh, immediate family. I haven't seen you uh, in quite a stretch, and uh, so uh, it is good to be back and to see your wonderful faces. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get right into it. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm glad to uh, be able to serve you in this way. I get to, not have to, I get to um, serve you, Lord God, through the preaching and the declaration of your word. And uh, I am always blown away by how you would choose to use such flawed human beings for such an important task. And I pray that by your grace that you would mute my flaws or you would leverage them by your providence for your glory. Lord God, would you allow your people to have a a more beautiful perspective of your scriptures as a result of this? Would you be glorified, Lord God, in the outcomes of all of our lives? Could we, Lord God, uh, experience, would you please let there be a, um, a demonstration of your spirit through the simplicity of the gospel preached? Would you allow us, Lord God, please, to experience the promise of scripture in being equipped Lord God, would we hear clear doctrine? Would we be reproved where necessary? Lord God, would you please correct us through your word? And would you, Lord God, give us instruction that makes us uh, profoundly ready for every good work? Would you furnish us, Lord God, for the doing of your work as a result of today's message? May the name of Jesus be made uh, bigger. May the gospel be more clear. And would you refine us as worshipers so that we would meet your criteria for being those who worship you in spirit and in truth? Lord God, would you teach even the teacher? Allow my heart to walk out of this pulpit, off of this podium, filled with joy, bursting, Lord God, with glee like a child getting their favorite gift on Christmas, because I know that I have had an encounter with you. Would you please allow it to happen? And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, hey, it's that time of the year where many of us, if not all of us, have probably crafted a few goals or resolutions. And I hope that by the end of today's message, you will join me in adopting at least one more resolution or one more goal uh, as a product of today's um, preaching. As you've already heard, we are starting a, another series here in the book of Acts. And as we walk through a few chapters in the book of Acts, I just want to give you some, uh, some things to, to help you put some handles on it. Now, you know that Acts is actually uh, a part of the book of Luke, or Luke wrote a major portion of the material here in Acts. As a matter of fact, Luke was a more prolific writer than the apostle Paul. It's just that Paul appears to have more volume because um, because his texts are broken up into individual books. But word for word, if I'm not mistaken, Luke actually wrote more characters or more words. So Luke's a big deal. We need to pay attention to Luke's writings. Now, this uh, this connection, this thematic connection between the book of Luke and the book of Acts is important for you to appreciate because Luke is writing to a person named Theophilus with the intent of outlining a chronological and orderly account of the ministry of Jesus. He is either doing it for the purposes of apologetics because perhaps Theophilus has some issues with the gospel, or he is doing it kind of as just a it for him because he is sharing the faith with someone of of, of high report and he wants to give them a, a kind of perspective that they can fully appreciate. But for either one of those, the book of Luke and its uh, follow-on, the book of Acts, are written as chronological accounts to give us an orderly understanding of the trajectory of the gospel from the ministry of Jesus out into the broader world. And so uh, the heart and soul of the book of Luke is captured in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. I believe that passage says, and the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And that same evangelistic Missional mojo, if you will, um, is carried forward throughout the book of Acts as we watch the gospel plow through a variety of different issues spiritual, political, geographical, and everything else. And so we're just going to kind of maybe on this gospel train stick our head out of the window and catch a little bit of this wind and hopefully we'll come back with something that really uh, fills our hearts and fills our sails, uh, with an understanding of what it means to move forward in the gospel. Um, as you already have heard the text read, I want you to think about this. You probably know the moment there in the book of Acts where Jesus and his disciples Uh, uh, who who he has been with now for some 40 days following his resurrection. 40 days following the resurrection, Jesus is hanging out with him, just kind of hammering home truth, threading the needle, giving them additional Christocentric hermeneutical context. What do I mean? The Bible says that Jesus would take his disciples and sit down and take them through the law, the prophets, and the writings. That is the whole corpus of the Old Testament and say, now, here's where I fit in the story. Here is why I am central to what God is doing here. So, He's been doing that now for 40 some odd days with the disciples. And now, as you open into the book of Acts, Jesus is getting ready to leave. He is about to ascend. He's about to take off, if you will. And that is the title of today's message Ready for Takeoff. Now, Um, I don't think that the disciples ever flew on a plane, but I have, and I believe that there are some very fitting analogies between being ready for takeoff that we can borrow from in our own personal experience that would help us appreciate what's happening right now in the hearts of the disciples. Uh, Interestingly enough, um, we went on a little vacation as a family, and uh, I'm sitting there on the airplane, and all 200 of us, right, who, who are flying to this destination, and I'm thinking to myself. There are those of us on this aircraft who know the exact number of passengers and where they are seated, who understand what the temperature is both here on the ground and up at our ultimate cruising altitude. There are folks on the plane who understand with incredible detail how fast we will be traveling and what that means in terms of both velocity and wind speed. There are those on the aircraft who understand how many times the oxygen in the cabin will circulate throughout the course of our trip before the plane ever hits the ground. There's people that understand what's happening inside this plane with me right now. And yet there are others who don't even know how to turn that little latch to get their tray table to drop down so that they can hold their drink. There's, There's people... There's people on aircraft who know exactly how much luggage we have in the belly, how much it weighs, and its corresponding impact on the amount of fuel consumption that that we will uh, have by the time we land at our destination. There's people that know that. And there are other people who are just scratching their head, wondering if they'll be able to negotiate for a second biscotti a cookie. (laughs) But amid all that variety of knowledge and concern... We all share some things in common. We've got the same pilot, and we've got access to the same power. We're all in the same aircraft. Regardless of how knowledgeable and detailed we might be, regardless of how comfortable or confident we might be, we can have confidence in two things. We have the same pilot, and we have the same power. And that's meaningful to where we are trying to go. And I believe that that analogy applies equally well, not only to us, but also to our ancestors in the faith, the disciples, as they stand here in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. And I'd like to read just kind of that very compressed piece for you, because I believe that the gospel should provide for us that same kind of bifold confidence. It should provide for us both a, a, it should be our confidence and our catalyst. In the same way that passengers on a flight together, while they may not know everything, they should know at least two things and have confidence in both the pilot and its power. And I believe the same applies to us. But, but listen to these words concerning our friends, the disciples here in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom up to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has fixed in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I'll just pause right there for a moment because I'm looking at this question that the disciples ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is not a dumb question. This is not a bad question. Jesus has just defeated death, sin, death, and the devil. He has been raised from the dead. He has told his disciples that all power has been given to me on heaven and in earth. And they come to this guy and goes, well, all right then, are you about to take us into second gear on the Abrahamic covenant? Are we about to see a full recovery of the power and the prestige that Israel should have? This is not a bad question. It's just not the right question. And what's interesting about this is I believe that when we say that the gospel should be our confidence and our catalyst, here's the first thing I think we can learn from our disciples in these first two verses, is that the gospel provides both confidence to know who to ask, even if we don't know what to ask. The gospel provides us with great confidence in knowing at least who to ask, even if we don't know the right questions to ask. There's nothing wrong with this question. It's not the right question, but it's not a bad question. As a matter of fact, look at the core content. They came to him and said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? That means they know that he's the king. That means that they know that he has power. That means that they are convinced. They have confidence based on his work on the cross, his completed work. They have confidence that this is the right person to ask. They may not know what to ask, but they know this is the guy to talk to. And ladies and gentlemen, I'll tell you, as we come into uh, 2022 and all of us probably thought we'd be able to to, to put COVID in the rearview mirror. And then here we come with a fresh set of positives. Here we come in 2022 with a fresh set of concerns about economy and everything else. And we may be looking to God and saying, well, Lord, are you you at this time going to fix all this stuff that we thought was going to put behind us? I had wrote out goals and plans and all these different things that I thought was going to... I had to put some stuff behind me. Are you at this time going to make good on these things that I'd hoped you'd do in 2022? You're asking the right person. It just might not be the right question. But the gospel should give us that confidence that, Lord, I don't even know if this is what I should be asking, but I know I need to come to you. And that's a great place to start. And this is the kind of confidence that the gospel gives us. This appeal by the disciples for restoration is just really what all of our hearts are asking. I've accepted Jesus. I believe in you. Both fists balled up. Saliva flying from my mouth when I talk about you. I believe in you, Jesus. I got all this passion. I, I, I believe in you. Now what? Now what? And I, and I believe that the great now what, that we can take it before the Lord. The Bible tells us in James chapter 1, uh, verses one, uh, excuse me, uh, verses 5 and 6, that if any person lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generally to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. In other words, ask with confidence. For the one who doubts is the person who is tossed like like a wave that is tossed to and fro by the the wind, and that person shouldn't expect to receive anything from God. So God recognizes that while you may not be confident in the things that are happening around, you may not have all the details about what's happening in the world around you, you can be absolutely confident in coming to him to inquire. It's okay to not have full confidence in the surrounding circumstances, but to have full confidence in him. The two are not mutually exclusive. When we look at the question of the disciples, it was a good question because later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and following, the Bible would clearly say this. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, and that uh, in times of refreshing, when they come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ who was appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouths of of his holy prophets long ago. So restoration of all things is still on the table. We can have that confidence in the gospel even if we don't know exactly what it will look like right now but we should be absolutely confident that it will occur the kind of confidence that we have in God must it has both global implications based on the word the works that we just read but it also has personal implications if you listen to the words of Peter first peter chapter 5 verse 10 after you have future after you have suffered a little while The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The gospel has to be our confidence and our catalyst. But this confidence is derived not from the fact that I have fully figured out how God's going to fix it, but that I know that he is the one who will fix it. Let our confidence be grounded there. This desire for deep restoration and that our world be fixed, however, whatever word you use for restoration, that our world get right, that heart's cry is not a bad one. It's a real one. It's part of the human appetite. It is a part of our longing for a savior, our longing for a salvation, our longing for something that no politician can provide, but only a Messiah can provide. These are great questions, and their answers are found in him. The gospel provides a confidence to know who to ask, even if we don't know what to ask. Think about all of us on the plane. There's only one, well, I can't say one, but Dory, you, you, you don't have your degree yet, but there's only one of us that's even close to probably having an aerospace engineering degree. I don't know how many people on the plane had a degree in physics. I don't know how many people would have any official credentials in anything that the plane was doing at a detailed level, but that lack of credentials didn't stop our confidence from getting on board, closing the door, and taking off of where we had to go. And so I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, you may, and I may not have the official credentials to figure out the future. We may not have all the credentials to officially understand all of the essence of the gospel at an infinitely deep level, but that lack of credential doesn't mean that it should cripple us from moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. And so our confidence comes in the completed work of Christ, not necessarily my credentials in having it all figured out. The Bible tells us further in, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, And because of him you are in Christ, and, because of, and he has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, when I came to know the Lord Jesus at a single-digit age, I could not spell sanctification. I didn't know the word redemption, but I knew holistically whatever I need was packed up in Jesus some kind of way. I had confidence in him, and I'll let him kind of flesh out the details later in my life, and I'm begging you and asking you, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the gospel, get your confidence in him. Get your confidence in the completed work, and let your confidence rest there, and let the Lord figure out the particulars as we move forward. I'll say this for you, Uh, don't be frozen in your seats, not feeling like you can't move forward in serving and participating in the work of God and plugging into ministry and being involved in the larger things of what, just because the rest of the world is on pause or sitting with bated breath, that's not your case. Put your confidence in the gospel. I I say it this way, that a a lack of clarity on how should not reduce our confidence in the what? What? God would say this in the Old Testament in a a, a much stronger way. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. In other words, it is not a precondition of obedience for you to have it all figured out. Or as Jesus simply said to his disciples, it's not yours to know the timing that the Lord has established in his own authority. Let's get moving, y'all. We have something else that we need to talk about. Now, as a contrast, so immediately after Jesus, not rebukes, but refines. Immediately after Jesus helps the disciples refine their curiosity. It's not for you to know the times that the Lord has established in his own authority, but, but what? The second verse, the second set of verses, verse eight, but you will receive power, When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, where the gospel provides confidence to know who to ask, even if we don't know what to ask, it also provides power for being and for doing. The gospel provides adequate power for both being and for doing. Notice what Jesus says, that, that per the completed work of the cross and the outcome of the promises of God, that the Holy Spirit is going to come on you and you will receive power, power to become and power to do. You will become my witnesses and where? On a certain trajectory in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. This is what the gospel provides. It provides power for both being and for doing. On our way back on our flight, all of us, all six of us, the family was sitting in exit row. And uh, I'm always amused by the uh, flight attendant's conversation in that moment, because there's a certain moment where she gets really serious, and she looks you in the eyes, and she says, you do realize you are sitting in the exit row, and I need both visual and verbal confirmation that should there be an emergency landing that you are willing and able to assist, can I get a yes? Can I get a yes? Can I yes? Can I get a yes? And she does not take nods. Right? And I love that. And then immediately after that serious call up of our abilities to assist on a crashing plane, bags flying everywhere, masks dropping out of the sky, we're careening toward the earth after she's recruited all six of us. She goes, oh yeah, by the way, read this thing in the back of the seat so you can figure out how to work it. <laughs> That's my training? <laughs> That's it? You just empowered me to save lives, and you're going to give me a pamphlet? (laughs) But not so with the Holy Spirit. Not so. He not only calls us up to be his witnesses, this incredibly daunting task to save lives in Jerusalem, Judea, places we've never been, He not only calls us up to save lives in all these regions, but he says, and then I'm going to give you power to do it. Not just a call-up, not just, just, not just a tap on the shoulder like you're becoming knighted into some parliamentary position, but really, real power is endued within the believer. As a matter of fact, according to the Bible, it's the same power that, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now said to occupy the lives of those who have trusted in Jesus. So there is real capacity to be both transformed as a person and to perform the things that God has called us to do. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 put it this way, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We are not allowed to observe the resurrection from a distance. We receive a deposit directly from the one who performed it. It's not a necklace. It's not a memento. It's not a a little badge that we put on our Christian jackets to say we're part of this club. No, we get a real powerful deposit to become something that we could not come in our own capacity. The Bible tells us that we not only get power for being, we're going to be transformed to become the children of God both authority and capacity, to become the children of God when we trust Jesus Christ. But it also says we get power for doing. We get this guarantee in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and following. I don't think you have that on your screen. But in Ephesians chapter 1, the work of the Holy Spirit is described as a part of our salvation. It is the down payment or the guarantee that God is going to finish what he started. We get that. But then on top of a guarantee, not just this paperwork to put in our holy file cabinets, we then get gifts according to Ephesians chapter 4 verses 8 and following. The, whole, the same one who was raised, he said, who was ascended into heaven, then gave gifts to men for the working of the ministry. We not only get guarantees and we get gifts, but then we also get grace. We get Grace he creates opportunities. Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 12, listen, when you find yourself encountering a moment where you don't know what to do, chill. The Holy Spirit in that moment will tell you exactly what to say. And we saw that worked out in the book of Acts, if you read it. These unlearned, uncertified men who all, the only certification that they had to their name was the fact that they had placed faith in Christ, would stand before people of infinite power, political power, face off even with those who were demon-possessed, and they would come up with some of the most incredible sermons ever, not because of their length, but because of their concentration. Peter would preach for like a couple of sentences, and 5,000 people would come to know Jesus. That's power. Well, what kind of power is it? It's the same power that we have access to. It's not locked up in the pages of the historic book. It is said that we are participants in that same power, Therefore, the Holy Spirit, the gospel, who comes, the gospel who is given to us per the work of the, excuse me, the Holy Spirit who is given to us per the work and promise of the gospel is this. The Holy Spirit gives us both competence to work beyond our natural abilities and confidence to work beyond our natural boundaries. You had better believe the disciples when they heard all the places where they were going to take the gospel were like, oh, you want us to go that far beyond hope? I thought you were just going to do like the kingdom thing here. I mean, think about it. They were thinking very locally and very vertically. Jesus, is it like the, the Acme? Is it the grand prize of salvation, the restoration of the kingdom? Aren't you going to right-size Israel right now? Aren't you going to do it right here at our address? And Jesus goes, no, I'm going to start at your address, and then I'm going beyond to addresses that you places that don't even have mailboxes yet. And you're going to take gospel there. And so the gospel does what? It provides confidence to know who to ask even if we don't know what to ask. The gospel does what? It provides power for being and for doing. The work of the Spirit both transforms who we are and it translates into what we should be doing. I want to beg you, saints. I want to beg you, brothers and sisters in the Lord, if you are indeed saved, cease to think about your salvation as just God's ticket or proof that he is going to produce salvation in you, but that he wants you to also participate in this larger kingdom work. I am an American just like you, and I am so accustomed to being the center of my own world. I mean, DoorDash has done it for me. Stuff that I used to have to go pick up, no, you bring that to me. I'm not even going to dress decently. I'll, I'll prop the door open and peep and grab that bag from you. I am the center of this. My whole world is built around my... I'm the centerpiece Why would, think about this, the the best things in life are brought to us, and then all of a sudden, we get saved, and it's like the best of God's work demands that we go beyond us. And so so we have to have this this boom from the Holy Spirit to kind of shake us out of this paradigm of wanting to be the centerpiece of all that's happening. Verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and the cloud took him out of their sight. And they were gazing into heaven as he went, and behold, two men stood by them in robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel should cause us to look upward, because that's where our hope comes from. But it also has to shake our cage a little bit and get us to look onward and to look forward. We can't just look in one direction. As a matter of fact, I would put it this way, that the, the gospel not only provides lift, because it lifts our heads and allows us to look to the heavens and to see the things that God is doing up above and to make that our priority. It gives us lift, but it also gives us thrust. And we need both to move forward with the right trajectory. If we're going to follow through on what God has called us to do in Jerusalem, Judea, uh, uh, Samaria, the ends of the world... If we're going to do it in Decatur, in Gwinnett, if we're going to do it in Athens, if we're going to do it in Dominican, if we're going to do it in Prague, if we're going to do it in Yugoslavia, if, if, if the Lord wants to do it for, for, with us in the Philippines, we can't just fall in love with what he's doing in this immediate moment. We have to be prepared for God to move us forward. He gives lift and he does thru- gives us thrust. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 2, it says, set your mind on the things that are above. Ain't nothing wrong with looking up. Not only not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Yeah, look up. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. There's reasons, ladies and gentlemen, to look up. But we must also look forward because the same upward trajectory that our lives have, the same hope with which we have been endued from the gospel, the same confidence that we have that allows us to look into heaven and not just see clouds, but to look forward to the coming of our Savior, that same hope, other people need it. And we are officially responsible for delivering it to them. We need to move forward so that we can be deliverers of this hope, informers of this hope, sharing it with others. I want to challenge you as we think about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, or whatever city names you want to plug into that. I want to challenge you to begin looking at your world through what I would call gospel lenses. Refuse to see your world simply as the news offers it. Right? Vaccine, what is it? What are the gospel implications of a vaccine? The gospel implications is that the human heart desires wholeness. Nobody wants to be sick. We want wholeness. Well, wholeness is a gospel offer. God wants his people to be whole, spiritually, physically, in every other way. He wants that. The, 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 the cry of the heart's cry for, for a vaccine is our deep desire for something that uniquely the gospel provides. I'm not saying science can't provide it. But even what they do provide, it will only be a foretaste or an appetizer for the ultimate wholeness that we all hope to have when we get our new bodies in heaven. You understand? We all desire unity. Whether you think about disunity and division around political lines or around uh, uh, all these other uh, uh, or ethnic lines, regardless of how you think about it, we all crave earnestly unity. And God's saying, that's cool. But recognize this, that even once there is harmony amongst humanity, amongst ethnicities, there will always be a new version of division. Why? Because if the human heart is set on sin and selfless or selfishness, there'll be a new version of division. This is not to crush your hope to try, but it is to curate your hope to make sure that it has a much higher trajectory knowing that any unity that we receive here will be temporary in nature until we are all unified in the knowledge of Christ. And every knee bows and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's the ultimate tone of unity. We all want a healthy economy. Why? Why? Because we want our needs met. No one wants to live in lack. But the Bible says The gospel can teach a person how to live both uh, in less than exemplary circumstances and live high on the hog and leverage both stations in life for the glory of Christ because we have found satisfaction in him. All, whether it be vaccines, whether it be the appeal for unity, a healthy economy, a desire for equity, to see people treated right, a desire for justice, a desire for greater accountability an opportunity to be our best possible selves. All of these are just tiny derivatives of what the heart really hopes to get in some ultimate way, and it is only ultimately available in Christ, and the only way that we ultimately find them in Christ is to become those who trust in the gospel. And so, but this reality of viewing my world this way and not just in fragmented news reports about which person or which party or which industry or which catalyst or which thing is messing up the economy or the supply chain, the only way that you look at your life like that is that the gospel, what, what, the gospel has become critical to you. Let me, let me say it this way. Um, the gospel will only become a catalyst that moves you when it has become critical to you. If the gospel is just an initial starting point, If it's just a doormat, if it's just the kickoff, if it's just the initial bottle rocket for belief, but it doesn't encompass the totality of what we should be doing in our lives, you don't see the gospel critically yet. And so remember when I asked you to join me in adding one more goal to your sheet? I'm asking you, ask the Lord, beg that the Lord would help you to see the gospel more critically, to see it more critically. This doesn't come just because a preacher said it. This doesn't come even just because you read it and you thought it was a great quote. It doesn't come because you saw it carefully curated in a beautiful meme. We only take the gospel that seriously when the Holy Spirit is doing something in us that makes it our first priority, where we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Like, the Scriptures have to come alive in me. Like, this is an active fight for me to keep the gospel critical and central, where it is my critical mass. So, I would ask us, we're going to pray together, very simply, if you would just join me. We're going to pray and say, Lord, while I love the disciples, I don't wanna get caught just looking up saying, Are you now about to restore my kingdom and my interest at this time? How can I move upon your interest and build your kingdom at this time? In every station that we occupy in life, there is a way where we can make a very subtle shift where my prayers and my energy and my emphasis aren't just, How are you going to fix my immediate kingdom of interest? But Lord, how are you going to work through us or through me individually? Yes, through Gospel Hope, man, awesome global missions offering. There's one tick, but, but, but what is your and my individual participation in building the kingdom and moving the gospel forward? Let's pray about that. Father, in the name of Jesus, you've heard me describe it. Now I just want to come to you and say it. I will be the first person to confess that I have a whole bunch of stuff going on that could creep in the center and become most critical. And while I would never say out loud that those things have become more central to me than the gospel, my life may say something different regardless of what my lips have confessed. And so, Lord God, I confess that it is easy for me, easy for us to allow other things to become central, to become our primary focus. And I'm begging you to teach me how to subordinate all of my passions and my interest to the gospel teach me the gospel afresh. Make it critical to me. Give me fresh eyes that I can see my world with gospel lenses so that no matter what someone or something is saying, I see its gospel implications. And then I also see my corresponding response. Give me the words in the moment for servers. Give me the word in the moment for people that I meet. Give it for strangers, for family members. Give me the strategy, O oh God, just like you promised the disciples per the work of the Holy Spirit. Even if I don't have it figured out beforehand, Lord God, would you move me forward in the gospel through the empowerment of your spirit? Lord God, do in us what you did in the disciples, Lord God. Give us the power to become and the power to do what you want done through your local church. And let it start with us as individuals. This is our earnest prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross is one where he gives his life in exchange for ours, a payment that we could not pay, a cost that we did not have the capital to cover. Our sin was heavy. Jesus paid that. But the work of Jesus on the cross not only puts us in right standing with God if we trust it, but it also puts us on a trajectory where there is work that he wants to do in us so that others would hear that same saving message. I am begging you to join us in moving forward in the gospel. Amen. Let's worship him for his great work on the cross and the work that he wants to continue through us.